Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of politics, economics, psychology, history, and science. I'm Seth Rosenblatt. And I'm Mark Olbert. So, Mark, today we're going to focus on a set of issues related to topics we've touched on in earlier podcasts, but I think these issues create a category all to themselves. And that is an examination about form over substance in politics, specifically what I think of as what I'll call hollow gestures or reverse engineered philosophies. <laughs> what? You object to people saying or doing things which aren't actually as significant as they first appear to be? <laughs> that sounds deeply un-American to I me. I know, yeah. <laughs> Although, admittedly, noise like that can and does clutter up serious debate, or worse yet, prevent needed debate from happening, harming the community. You know, often as we see in political debates, when an elected official or an activist or any one of us, frankly, use a label for something which sounds intelligent or interesting on the surface, but often belies a lack of substance or critical thinking. I think that kind of hollowness you're talking about is related to what I think of as reflexive or unthinking reactions to simple assertions. And it's generally the result of failing to do what we come back to again and again in these podcasts, the importance of thinking critically, particularly about community issues. It also often highlights an intellectual inconsistency in arguments, and we'll provide a number of examples of those. But to be clear, we're not suggesting that every use of a certain phrase or philosophy is by definition meaningless. It's more that we have found that when people throw out meaningless gestures, they tend to cling to certain particular phrases and philosophies. <laughs> I think the potential for hollowness is related to how abstract a concept is. If I point to a dog and call it a cat, everyone will immediately realize I'm wrong and correct me, not to mention doubt my sanity. But consider, <laughs> but consider something like patriotism. Because it isn't directly observable, that kind of feedback and correction can't really take place. And therefore, abstract labels can be misused or abused, potentially to the community's detriment. But I agree with you, not all political statements, even ones not based on objective data, are hollow. So I think we better start, as we often do, by defining what we mean. I think there are two general categories of speciousness. The first is what I'd call these hollow gestures. These are reasonably sounding statements that, in many circumstances, have really little or no substance behind them. One of my favorites is the statement, America first. Right. <laughs> Does it mean coming in first in the Olympics? <laughs> or maybe it's first in emitting greenhouse gases or something. <laughs> or having the biggest military force on the planet? Right, of course. It can mean so many things that it actually doesn't mean much at all. But most people still act if something was conveyed when it gets uttered. And when you peel it open, you may find it full of internal contradictions, and so it often gets used more as a political cudgel than anything else. You know, the second category is a bit more nuanced, and I think even more politically insidious. This is the use of these grandiose philosophies that are somehow shoehorned in to justify a position that furthers one's own or one own's group's interest or political viewpoint. On the other hand, unfortunately, some kind of shoehorning is necessary because none of us is smart enough to deal with the complexities of the real world. We have to look for analogies and patterns and thereby risk seeing things that aren't there. And we've talked in the past how humans are not really good at seeing patterns that actually exist, but make up patterns that don't exist. <laughs> you know, the latter being like this ancient idea, like that everything comes in threes. <laughs> it's highly unlikely there's some hidden agency in the world that groups and counts events for us. But, you know, believing in threes is mostly harmless, but there are other examples of shoehorning that are potentially much more serious and potentially detrimental to the community at large. But even hollow gestures and shoehorn philosophies can have community benefits. 
which we'll explore as we discuss some examples of each. Right, and that's similar to our discussion we had last time about naming. I do appreciate the notion that some of these actions can offer the potential for enlightenment and education, for sure. And they can also be a way of a community asserting something about its values and aspirations, which is pretty important. Okay, let's start with a few simple examples, some of which may be in a gray area before we get into the more complex ones. The first one that comes to mind, and this happened particularly in New York City, but also in other places, when at the beginning of the COVID crisis, you know how people would go out on their balconies at 7 p.m. and bang pots and pans, right, to supposedly show their appreciation for healthcare workers. The intent was clearly for people to honor a very hard-pressed medical profession. Yeah, and I certainly get that. But you know, I know a lot of medical professionals, I think, who felt like, gee, thanks, but could you please get us some more personal protective equipment instead of banging pots and pans? Yeah, I see that. Did this just make the bangers feel better? But on the other hand, it might have mobilized political leaders to actually do something. Right. And that's why we think of some of this as in a bit of a gray area. And I think another example, you know, things like how we name months, because there's ones that are more substantive than others. You know, I mean, we have Black History Month, we have Pride Month, but every month is sort of named after something. Hang on a second here. I think that somebody needs to get around to naming August the Boiling Frog Month. I mean, it's hot all over. It's a perfect tie-in. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. So, yeah, and on the surface, at least, such namings seem hollow because they don't really have any substance behind them. Then again, Seth, it can force conversations about certain topics. Yeah, the media and even politicians, I certainly focus more on related issues on those months, right? And there could even be some political community evolution on important issues, perhaps. If nothing else, naming months can help people who have historically been marginalized feel and become more incorporated into the community. I'll, I'll buy that that one is not as hollow as some other examples. But let me give you another one. And this is one which we see a lot in the part of country we live in. These are the we believe signs that many people put up on their lawn. OK, hang on a second. Now you're getting personal. I've <laughs> proudly displayed one of those in my front yard for years now. In fact, I think I need to get a new one because the old one has faded. And, and to explain to people who aren't familiar with these, who don't live <laughs> where we live, these are these progressive political statements that have a number of short slogans on them and, and these signs that people put on their lawn. And they often say things like we believe Black Lives Matter, science is real, no human is illegal, you know, things like that. Yeah, or women's rights or human rights, love is love, those kind of things. Despite the fact that I know both you and I agree with each of those statements, one could argue it's a fairly hollow gesture you're making, Mark, right? Because the sign in and of itself doesn't do anything. The sign itself doesn't. On the other hand, the signs can spark community conversations about rectifying past bad practices. And if nothing else, they signal acceptance to those who felt marginalized. It's, in my mind, the reverse of the old out of sight, out of mind concept. I mean, that's certainly the most optimistic way of looking at it, for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me give you yet another example, which is more recent, which is, you know, we see around here in other parts of the country, people displaying the Ukrainian flag, which is presumably in some sort of solidarity with Ukraine. And again, I agree with the notion of solidarity, but it's very similar to the banging pots and pans example, right? I mean, I suspect all of our listeners are sympathetic to Ukraine's plight, but I imagine Ukrainians would prefer our supporting, you know, some charity that's helping refugees, right? More than just knowing we put up their flag. I agree, Seth. I think the Ukrainians would appreciate uh, me sending them an anti-tank missile more than me putting <laughs> up their Ukrainian flag, but that's difficult for me to do. On the other hand, 
those kind of expressions of solidarity may have mobilized political leaders to do something sooner than they might have otherwise. Then again, I think it's pretty clear, you know, to your point, that those leaders were pretty motivated to do something by events already. Before we get some really big examples, I want to run another one by you, which I think is less in a gray area. And I'd be remiss in not mentioning what I think a phrase that has the potential, well, be the ultimate empty gesture. And it's what we've named the title of this podcast after. It's when people offer thoughts and prayers after a mass shooting. That particular saying is terribly overused, so much so that it strikes me as merely a way to let policymakers avoid doing anything substantive about guns. And because of that, I think this phrase has crossed over from the merely meaningless to the downright offensive. I mean, at least in my mind, it makes just a symbol for emptiness and obstruction. I agree with you. On, on the other hand... I doubt either of us would want to live in a country where electeds don't feel enough empathy to want to say something after a mass shooting. Sure, I would just argue that coming from those in power to make a change, empathy without action isn't empathy at all. Absolutely. We just want them to actually do something about the problem in addition to whatever they may choose to say. Okay, so let's move to some of the bigger examples. And this one is more of a shoehorn philosophy than an empty gesture per se. And I'm referring to the off-sided philosophy that tends to be hollow in its real-life usage, and that is the claim of libertarianism. At its core, libertarianism sure sounds appealing. I mean, it's fundamentally a political philosophy that upholds individual liberty as a core value, maximizing autonomy and political freedom while minimizing the state's regulation of individual liberties. Right, but unfortunately, proponents of libertarianism used what I think of as perceived violations of their liberties, you know, more like tautological externalities, right, to justify points of view. On a very practical level, libertarianism also lends itself to having self-interest trump community interests and ignore real externalities. It could rationally argue I should be able to drive 100 miles per hour on local streets, at least when I was younger and had better reflexes, even <laughs> though that puts others in grave danger. And like other philosophies, including ones we'll talk about, they're often used hypocritically and situationally. I guess this is similar to blind adherence to market capitalism, which we've talked about several times before. Many folks use that kind of blind approach to justify a particular point of view on a particular issue. I think of libertarianism, you know, as fine, as sort of a directional philosophy. It's a starting point, maybe even a bias. I think that's okay to start your thinking with that. But I don't think anyone is actually a true libertarian, even if they claim to be. <laughs> a good example is the staunchly libertarian, at least by what he says, Rand Paul. Because while he wraps his policy positions in libertarianism, he's always happy to accept aid for Kentucky, as he should. <laughs> right. Because emphasizing and maximizing individual liberty sounds like a great idea, but not if it gets to a point where it starts harming other people or other communities or individuals. It's just a question of where we each draw the line. We forget a lot of times that these things are spectrums, not on-off switches. And all too often in practice, so-called libertarians, such as Rand Paul, get to be free riders, which are those who accrue the benefit of others' community work while trying to reserve more individual rights for themselves. They also tend to ignore or minimize the effect their, quote, free, unquote, actions have on others. We discussed this when we talked about the prisoner's dilemma. A big example, of course, is like pollution and emitting carbon in the atmosphere, right? Libertarians promote their right to engage in certain commercial activities, but ignore the real effect on others, either currently or, or down the road. And of course, a more recent example is the anti-vax crowd. Their cries of, quote, freedom, unquote, are at best free riding on the work the rest of us are doing to keep ourselves 
and our communities, including them, safe. And at worst, they're actually harming the rest of us. Right. And we've talked about this a few times in other podcasts, but the big problem always seems that people tend to ignore or forget or minimize the support they get from the larger community in helping their own life. A key reason humans form communities in the first place is that communities let us, as individuals, do more than we could ever do by ourselves. And as you and I both learned very much firsthand serving, you know, in local government, everyone wants and needs services and no one likes to pay taxes for it. <laughs> That's right. The pandemic also exposed the inconsistencies in my mind of libertarianism. If anything, it showed how government involvement, community involvement was more needed. And at least some libertarians like the rest of us were more than willing to benefit from that government interference. Now it's time to talk about one of the words most prone to hollow gestures and shoehorn philosophies. In our introduction, Mark, you hinted at it, and that's patriotism. Unfortunately, words and actions in its name can actually run a significant risk of actually damaging the community. Well, my handy-dandy dictionary here says patriotism is, quote, devotion to and support for one's country, unquote. That's pretty vague, which I guess <laughs> it means patriotism is often in the eye of the beholder, right? Personally, I think it all depends on what people do with their feeling of patriotism that matters. In that sense, the definition is inextricably tied to how somebody acts. There are two lines in the Star-Spangled Banner which highlight this for me. They're in a stanza that's rarely sung, so few people know it, outside our military academies anyway. The words extol those who are willing to put their lives between their loved ones and war's desolation which I think is an example of whether or not you as an individual are willing to sacrifice your self-interest to benefit the community you live in. Clearly, being willing to take a bullet is in that category, right? But more broadly, it's a recognition of the value of community and the willingness to put its interests ahead of your own. Strengthening bonds among community members can have tremendous benefits, financial, psychological, and otherwise, for everybody in the community. But unfortunately, because patriotism is a complex and nuanced concept, it is prone to reductionism and even corrupt use. For one thing, you have to realize that you can be loyal and attached to your community, but appreciate that others are attached to theirs as well. And that's okay. It's not a contest. And I know, Mark, I've heard you say that living in a pluralistic society pretty much requires that, right? <laughs> that's right. We are all simultaneously members of concentric circles of communities neighborhoods, cities, counties, states, nations, continents, the world, and they're not mutually exclusive. Yet, but what we see in practice is that a lot of people often exaggerate the differences among those layers, right, and pit them against each other. That's why we have red states and blue states, right, and the continuing polarization of this country. It's almost a redefinition of loyalty and patriotism. As a city council member, I saw colleagues who believed the state needed more housing but opposed it locally. That always confused me. Loyalty to just one of those circles we live in is not, in my opinion, patriotism. And I would argue that an even greater danger from this sort of reductionist thinking regarding patriotism is that it tends to lead to something called jingoism. And, and probably on a future podcast, we should delve into that more, and particularly the term America first, which you mentioned, right, and why that's sort of both nonsensical and, and very dangerous. Jingoism is an extreme form of patriotism, often involving blindly ignoring obvious shortcomings and problems, and it often leads to actions that conveniently and coincidentally just happen to serve somebody's self-interest. The January 6th attacks were a perfect example of this blind jingoism dressed up as patriotism. Another good example of this, which happens both here and 
in other countries is wag the dog patriotism. And for those who aren't familiar with that phrase or don't remember, there was a movie named Wag the Dog where an American administration started an overseas war to distract from a domestic scandal. Even though that's a bit of an exaggeration, war and overseas conflicts are often good mobilizers for forging domestic political support. The U.S. didn't get directly involved in World War II despite the obvious threat of Nazism and the Japanese conquering parts of China and Korea until Pearl Harbor. And LBJ failed to mobilize the country behind the Vietnam War when the public rejected the Gulf of Tonkin attack because it wasn't seen as being serious and or threatening. On the other hand, if you look at current Wag the Dog examples, I mean, the primary one that stands out in my mind is Putin's invasion of Ukraine or even Kim Jong-un's threats to the West. Clearly, both of those are, at least in part, designed to rile up their own political support at home. Another example is both politicians and many Americans' reaction to 9-11. This could have been leveraged as a great way to bring people together, but in the name of patriotism, we promoted instead xenophobic policies and took aggressive military actions that frankly ended up serving us pretty poorly. Yeah, I agree. And for a while, particularly, there was this sort of blind support of everything our government would do in response and and critical thinking and substantive debate was severely reduced, all in the name of patriotism. It's always bothered me that progressives and liberals have allowed patriotism to be co-opted by the right, who then generally use it to further whatever their current aims are. Chanting patriotism creates a strong party identity, in part by stirring up these jingoistic feelings we're talking about. It's admittedly a very powerful form of community building, but it's also pretty perverted, at least in my opinion. And that dynamic has gone all the way down to just flying the U.S. flag. I mean, because Republicans have wrapped themselves in the flag on so many issues, I mean, figuratively and and actually literally in some cases, and progressive has done, frankly, a pretty poor job at defining patriotism in a better way, as, as we're discussing now. So in many parts of the country, just flying the flag is almost a statement that you're a conservative. Which is why, as a progressive, I make a point of flying the flag so that it's not solely the symbol of those who would corrupt patriotism to their own ends. There you go. Well, related to flying the flag, Mark, I wanted to ask you about another phrase that, like acts of so-called patriotism, falls into this gray area between real value and hollowness. It's a phrase so commonly used by both politicians and citizens that has become fairly trite, uh, rendering it more and more meaningless, at least in my mind. And, And that's the expression of, I support the troops, or similarly, I support the police. Let's delve a little deeper into what all that means. Clearly, our country is better off with enough military and domestic police forces to keep us safe. That perceived benefit is why, in fact, we tend to vote for politicians with similar views. The real question is, how much is enough? But we don't usually have those type of nuanced discussions. Often when people say they support the troops, it's really just a form of virtue signaling. It's not as if most of these people are sending money or supplies overseas to support the troops. What strikes me as hypocritical is that often... The same folks that are saying they support the troops or support the police are in fact the ones that don't actually support policies that would in fact support them. Yeah, a perfect example is, you know, ensuring the VA has enough resources to treat veterans, both physically and psychologically, when they return from their duties. The hypocrisy is essentially a way of trying to get something, right, protection, without really paying the cost for it. Another sad example was the recent vote by Republicans to deny veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan healthcare support for injuries that they suffered from burn pits. That was so egregious an hypocrisy that public opinion overwhelmed them, forcing them to eventually support the bill. And as we discussed in our Jumping to Conclusions episode, all of the folks who claim they support the police 
should logically actually support gun control for civilians is that's one of the principal actions that would actually make the police both more effective and safer. <laughs> that's right. I think the frame in which people make those kind of statements is really important. Clearly, not all expressions of patriotism or support for the troops, the police, what have you, are specious. Context is really important. Which segues very nicely into the second issue with these phrases. Kind of like jingoism, they present us with this binary false choice. Either support the troops or the police, or be critical of them. When I was on the city council, I definitely supported law enforcement. I still do. But I also didn't hesitate to ask them tough questions and work to hold them accountable to the community they serve. Not doing those things too often leads to bad situations. Yeah, I mean, that should seem obvious, right? You could be supportive of the police, but also work to continually improve how they function. In fact, we should all want that kind of change. There is no need to shut down your brain in order to support something. But unfortunately, taking that kind of reductionist approach to these expressions tends to do just that sacrificing necessary accountability. A better approach is a form of dynamic tension where you simultaneously both support people and hold them accountable. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. I mean, there's this similar dynamic, particularly when politicians describe themselves as law and order candidates. To me, it's just another oversimplification that mostly, but unfortunately, often successfully, serves to block meaningful debate on a subject that is very complex, really just to rile people up for their own personal political gain. <laughs> a wonderful case in point is Trump's and the GOP's current trumpeting of how he was violated when a search warrant was executed at Mar-a-Lago. It's funny how conservative politicians are all for law and order right up until they become suspects. Quite a coincidence. <laughs> Speaking of taking a position until it turns on them, I've always been fascinated by the selective use of the term states' rights when justifying a policy or decision. Of course, states do have rights, right, under our system of federalism, in fact, quite a number of them. Yeah, we shouldn't forget the whole concept of states having rights was essentially a compromise our founders had to work out in order to get agreement on the Constitution back in 1787. Hamilton, Madison, Jay, Washington, and all the other proponents were striving to build a nation out of people who did not see themselves as part of a single nation. Not all republics use that kind of federalist system, which is why I always say federalism, which many praise in an almost jingoistic sense, is really just another example of a least bad political solution. But to be clear, we're not disputing that states have rights or that states should have rights. There are definitely some advantages to the system, right? As many have pointed out, that states are laboratories of democracies, for example, where they could try things out and demonstrate them on a local scale before being adopted more broadly. We saw this happen with same-sex marriage in years past. It's happening now with marijuana decriminalization, to some extent with police reform, a whole host of topics. But the problem is that the excuse of states' rights is used as hypocritically as some of the other terms we've already discussed. For example, many folks on the right advocate for state rights when they want to ban abortion or gay marriage. But then they eschew states' rights when it comes to issues like gun control or <laughs> marijuana legislation. <laughs> That's right. The classic example in my mind sadly involves slavery. The southern states only argued states' rights when they were out of power at the federal level. <laughs> right. So let's just be honest, right, and say, these are the issues I believe in. Because I don't think anyone truly believes in states' rights per se, just like I don't believe anyone is a true libertarian per se. They believe in certain issues, which we're all free to agree or disagree with. I think what we're highlighting here is that it's the reductionism that gets applied, which is the problem. You can't want all of the benefits of the support of the federal government, but also demand the freedom to change whatever rules you like. There has to be a complex division of responsibility and power, 
which in fact is something that might be interesting to delve into more in a future podcast on federalism. For sure, that'll be interesting. But speaking of division of responsibility and power, let's move on to another branch of government and another really good example where a philosophy is often just a smokescreen to give some larger justification for a specific policy, often ignoring internal consistency. (laughs) I think what you're referring to is when legislators or their supporters complain about activist judges or judicial activism. Yes, exactly. We can certainly debate about the role of judges in interpreting the Constitution and other laws, but the proponents of so-called judicial restraint seem only upset when rulings don't go their way, (laughs) right? When the tables are turned and rulings are consistent with their viewpoint, it's suddenly not judicial activism anymore. (laughs) In particular, that cry is raised, usually by right-wingers, when a decision relates to expanding rights for other people, specifically those who are marginalized within the community they govern. Right. And obviously, a very recent example of this is the Dobbs decision striking down Roe versus Wade. I mean, conservative lawmakers who had been complaining about judicial activism when it comes to cases like allowing same-sex marriage were suddenly quiet about this philosophy when Roe versus Wade was overturned. <laughs> Even though Dobbs argued in part that the current court had to be activist in order to reverse an inappropriately activist position taken by an earlier court, which I got to say strikes me as the pot calling the kettle black. It's hard to imagine anything more activist than striking down a right governing how one manages one's own body that has been in place for 50 years. But notwithstanding the hypocrisy, throwing around these terms ignores a critical part of how our legal system is designed to work. Judges do make laws, right? That's the definition of case law. We may agree or disagree with them, but most decisions aren't any more activist than any others. It just feels that way when it's something that we don't like. It seems like conservatives in particular are victims to this type of thinking. You know, they walk around with a pocket constitution in their pocket, right? Ignoring the inherent complexity of this federalist system. (laughs) I served for years on the council with someone who periodically would whip out his pocket constitution and wave it around as the font of all law. I always wanted to tell him that it's not all in those nine pages. That's why there are hundreds of millions of words of case law. That's a great example of a trap that many fall into, relying with a near religious fervor on those nine pages. Uh, The result of which includes the philosophy and another term we're going to discuss, originalism. For those not familiar with the term, originalism is a judicial interpretation of the U.S. Constitution that aims to follow how it would have been understood or was intended to be understood at the time it was written. Now, first of all, the very notion is logically flawed, right? Even the founders understood, and there's lots of writings to back this up, right? That they understood that times would change, technology would change, science would reveal new facts to us, right? But that's that discussion for another day, Mark. Hey, yet another potential future topic. (laughs) But I also think we should bring up the related philosophy of textualism. That's a mode of legal interpretation which claims to focus on the plain meaning of the text of a legal document. You can see the potential for hypocrisy in originalism and textualism in the writings of the current Supreme Court majority. I mean, they consider themselves to be originalists or textualists, but they also seem to use that stand situationally, too. (laughs) They argued in the Dobbs case that since abortion was not mentioned as a specific right in the Constitution, it wasn't a right. Yeah, and let's ignore the logical flaws of that argument, as there are, of course, tons of rights that we have that aren't specifically enumerated in the Constitution. I was particularly annoyed by Justice Thomas's reference to rights needing to have a long tradition in American history to be real somehow. That's just him falling victim to something we've talked about before in other podcasts, starting point bias. But despite his use of justification of originalism or textualism in the Dobbs case, 
when it comes to interpreting the Second Amendment of the Constitution, which, by the way, is one of the has one of the few rights in the Constitution that specifically tells you why it exists. Right. That doesn't happen right in the Constitution that often. It says a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state. That's a justification written right in the language. So it seems like they clearly ignore that original intention that's written right in there. They kind of tend to dance around the concept of, hey, what exactly is a, quote, firearm, unquote, an 18th century musket or pistol or a semi-automatic high capacity rifle or a machine gun? The courts accepted many of these radically new devices as being equivalent to muskets while rejecting others like machine guns and, uh, I guess, nuclear warheads. That inconsistency highlights the weaknesses of originalism and textualism as approaches. Yeah, and I think there's another great example. Let's look just at the First Amendment. Both the Supreme Court's historical and recent rulings on religion in some way fly in the face of their stated philosophy of originalism or textualism. That's a great example. The Establishment Clause of the First Amendment says, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, unquote. So, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, but wouldn't a strict reading, either an original or textual reading of the First Amendment, indicate that having Christmas as a national holiday would be plainly unconstitutional? Because that feels like it's a law respecting the establishment of religion. And maybe it's just because I'm not a Christian, I see this inconsistency, you know, more evidently. And it is interesting to note that historically, Christmas was not a federal holiday when this country started. It didn't actually become one until 1870. <laughs> protecting the freedom to express your religious beliefs must also include protecting the right not to have or want to express your religious beliefs. Otherwise, given human nature, things all too easily decay into suppression of minority religious beliefs and, sadly, as history shows, outright violence. So we have judges that claim they're originalists or textualists, but then they jury-rig, pun intended, an argument to support a personal belief they already had. <laughs> More broadly, originalism and textualism face serious risks of generating nonsensical arguments, which makes it curious that we all tend to grant them so much weight in our community discourse. So it sounds like we're surrounded by a lot of nonsense and misdirection. You know, how do we handle living in a world like this? Well, you know, Seth, like most issues, I think it comes down to a matter of degree. If hollow gestures don't hurt anyone and they just express your First Amendment rights, well, then fine. Plus, you know, we have to remember they may help spur positive political or social change. But if they're used as a smokescreen to hide real issues or used as a political cudgel or otherwise distract from real issues or doing something substantive, that's a problem. I think fundamentally, we just need to be aware of hollow gestures and these reverse engineered philosophies. I mean, either coming from others or even ourselves, frankly, right? I mean, have your BS detector on high when you hear terms <laughs> like patriotism, originalism, libertarianism, states' rights, activist judges, or you hear people say, America first, or they support the troops, or and certainly if they said thoughts and prayers. And when you make your own gesture, make sure to have some substance behind it. Make it mean something. For example, feel free to put up that We Believe sign, but also see what else you can do to support marginalized groups in your community. You know, and maybe we can redefine terms, you know, when we can. And the one that comes to mind is how we think about patriotism. Certainly beware of jingoism, which can include blindly following others, flag waving, pitting your circle against others, you know. But what's a better way to define and promote patriotism? For me, it's all about putting the community interest before your self-interest. Which certainly could be serving your country in the military, but that's not the only patriotic act. It also includes things like running for local office or serving on a local commission 
And lest we forget, it absolutely means remembering to vote. Yeah, absolutely, of course. Or you could do things like volunteer or donate to charities that make other people's lives better. Or get politically active to lobby for positive change, not for yourself, but for your fellow Americans. Yes, for sure. Because reductive thinking around patriotism has led some to accuse their fellow Americans of being unpatriotic when they criticize their government or its leaders. But I would argue working to make your country better is the very definition of patriotism. I grew up in a time when people fought over whether they were patriotic or anti-patriotic based on how they viewed symbolic gestures like flag waving or the Pledge of Allegiance. I always thought that argument was nuts, which is why rather than pledging allegiance to the flag with my hand over my heart, I used to just review in my head historical examples of community actions, both the good, things like saving civilization in World War II, and the bad, like fighting to preserve slavery and discrimination. The point being, let's celebrate the good things and figure out how to fix the bad things and teach our children to do that too. I think that makes a lot of sense. For me, patriotism is something that's often done quietly and not out loud. It's why I use the term, he wrapped himself in the flag, not as a compliment, but as an insult. <laughs> well, I think that's a great place to end it, Mark. You know, I'm sure we left off a bunch of other hollow phrases and misused philosophies, so we certainly invite our listeners to send us their ideas that, you know, maybe those could lead to future topics. I know I'm looking forward to all those future podcasts we've now touched on delving further into things like originalism, religion, and other stuff. Yeah, I agree for sure. Well, thanks to our listeners and signing off. This is Seth. And Mark. Reminding you that rather than just saying you support the Boiling Frog, you could make a substantive gesture by buying some merchandise on our website, <laughs> the www.theboilingfrog.net. Bye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.